everyone, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thank you guys so much for joining us for yet another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Jenna, we're being joined by a guest, another guest I should say, who is much smarter than either of us. <laughs> we'll <laughs> say that. I'm smart in a different here. way. <laughs> They're always so nice about it. It's too. always fun for us though because we learn a lot from these episodes. Mm-hmm. It's always exciting. We're being joined by Luisa Raspoli, who is uh, one of our postdoctoral scientists at CRU over at the Center for Research of Endangered Wildlife. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. We know you're busy. I really appreciate you inviting me. I'm really excited to talk to you about all the things I do, and especially things about hippos. Yes, (laughs) it's funny because we've talked about this before, but we don't really understand what a scientist does on a daily basis, and all of you have different roles. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know, they're just, it's so fascinating to me that you guys grew up and somehow ended up knowing this was a job because I wouldn't have even known or like come across that. Yeah. I, I mean, my path is, is, it's a really interesting one because I hadn't planned to go into research. Okay. I mean, I, like you said, I didn't even really knew it existed. I was going to go to vet school and then I needed a job while I was an undergraduate. Um, and I got somehow into a fly fruit fly lab. Oh, okay. Taking apart fruit flies, looking at their genetics and things like that. Oh my gosh, taking apart. They're already so tiny. <laughs> like, how do you do that? <laughs> very, under a microscope with tweezers. But yeah, so I started reproduction very early because I was working with fruit fly ovaries. <laughs> wow. So this was undergrad? This is my undergrad. Wow. Where did you go for undergrad? Um, UC Davis. Okay, wow. So I'm from California. And that's where I learned, ooh, I like being in the lab. I like asking questions that we don't know the answers to. And I mean, I didn't really like fruit flies, (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) I knew I wanted to go slightly bigger, (laughs) and so I went and um, did my PhD at Colorado State, Okay, and I was really focused on, it was still reproduction, but more kind of like the hormones, we call it endocrinology, and how the brain talks to the rest of the part of your body to kind of control fertility. And things like that. So, and I was trained morally thinking about human reproduction, mm-hmm. but a lot of domestic animals is what we use for models so we can understand how to develop like contraceptives or how to, to you know, p- sustain a pregnancy and things like that. Which is funny, that came in handy yes. later on. We'll talk right. about that. <laughs> so, um, but so I was kind of cross trained to like think about reproduction as a whole and like, you know, learn that there's going to be individual differences between species, but think, of, you know, think about the things, the little black boxes that we still don't know the answers to. See, and that's what, yeah, I just don't understand how you can find out the answers doing the things you do, but <laughs> were you initially like growing up or in undergrad wanting to work with animals oh yes okay oh yes i want like i said i wanted to go to the vet school i wanted to be a mixed practice um veterinarian i wanted to do both large and small and everything in between okay um and i i mean i volunteered i was really excited i volunteered at a a vet hospital while i was at uc davis who specialized in reptiles and i thought that was really cool cool. yeah didn't have a lot of hands-on um i did help my friend with his 25 foot ball python wow. <laughs> so um but I, I just found it fascinating and i love the idea of taking care of animals i just now i do it from the science side mm-hmm. to try to develop tools to help us help them sustain themselves help them to thrive help their health just and i focus on reproduction i focus on fertility I focus on both sides of the coins. Sometimes we want them to be very fertile, <laughs> and sometimes we don't. And That's trying to understand to when we can't get it to work the way we want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't... So, okay, so then, so you were at Colorado State, mm-hmm. and where did you go from there? So I went to Tennessee. 
I was at University of Tennessee, and that's where, like, my first postdoc. Okay. And I was working mostly cattle fertility, and this is where sperm comes into it, the male gamete. And I, they needed somebody who had a really good grounding reproductive physiology, but no preconceptions about sperm. And I, that's what I had, because I was focused oh. in on hormones, not sperm. Oh, okay. But I, you, when you get trained, you get trained. I know general physiology. I know how, like, why... You need to eat in order to sustain the pregnancy kind of thing. You need all the parts work together. It's kind of an ecosystem just in one body kind of thing. So I understood about sperm. So they that's what I did for 15 years was studying cattle sperm. So I know a lot about sperm. <laughs> oh, I mean, 15 years, like, what are you studying? Are you... I, like, what are you looking for? What are you trying to learn? Or? So, we're trying to, so like, uh, one part of our lab was looking at an in vitro production and trying to understand for dairy cows, you know, they get hot and they don't get pregnant. Well, we kind of want milk all the time. So, in the summer, it's not really good if we don't get cows pregnant because you have to have mm. pregnant cow in order to get milk. Oh, sure. So, yeah. part of the thing is, you know, making sure handle sperm to fertilize an oocyte. And, you know, and understand that connection and why heat stress may compromise the oocyte, that female gamete, and not produce an embryo. So I got a lot of work with that. I also, just studying the proteins of sperm, what, you know, what controls its fertility. You know, I'm a molecular biologist, which means I tend to take everything apart and make it glow. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I've done that a lot of sperm. So that's why, I mean... I started working, I had by chance to work with Memphis Zoo and work with their elephants and trying to understand why they weren't getting their females pregnant. And I was interested on the sperm side that maybe, you know, something was going wrong when we did these artificial inseminations. And I'm like, you know, I kind of want to do this all the time. So I took a step back and I'm changing my career path. And that's why I'm here at Cincinnati Zoo. Just brave. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you've done so much for so long and then just switching is is very neat. I'm still doing all the same techniques, all the same kind of research. I'm just, my species has changed focus and I'm much happier. I'm much, much happier. I love what I do. Good. So how did you get involved at Memphis? So just kind of a connection between my mentor there at University of Tennessee. Okay. She had gone to school with um, somebody who was at Memphis Zoo, who was the director at the time. And so he had come to talk to our um, our classes for our advanced repro class and then invited um, a group of us to come and watch an artificial insemination in an elephant. And so just because he was letting us look at the sperm, I'm like, hey, have you thought about this? And so uh, it developed into a small project, and I decided I wanted it to be, instead of like 2% of my time, all of it. <laughs> 100% of my time. Awesome. Did you end up figuring anything out for their elephants or making any sort of big, like. So, what I was looking at is whether, when we were doing the artificial inseminations, if they were causing an inflammation reaction in the females, and so that, that subsequent artificial inseminations, maybe they were having an immune reaction, and that was preventing them from getting pregnant. And in the one out of the four, the females, there definitely seemed to be something going on. I mean, it was a really small study, and yeah. you know, but and whether that is the problem, I mean, we still haven't really figured out a hundred percent how we, you know, get do artificial insemination in elephants and produce a pregnancy yeah. all the time. Um, but we're, it's a little bit of data, and we're working on it. I'm actually working with Denver Zoo to try to understand um, more about Asian elephant semen and how we um, cryopreserve it, how we freeze it. And so hopefully that will help us, you know, if we freeze it better and make it easier to do artificial insemination and stuff. So do you like freeze it a certain way for a certain amount of time and then you thaw it and you see how healthy it is and then you freeze it a different way 
and then see if it's healthier that it's way. It's exactly what we do. Oh my gosh. But then you just have to come up with the different ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and, and the, it's amazing because we have a wealth of information from like horses and from cattle and from humans. And mm -hmm. I mean, human freezing, I mean, human sperm is not as healthy as some others. So we've actually learned a lot of lessons. So we're taking, instead of animals modeling for human health, human health is now modeling I for love animals. That. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I've never thought about it, like needing to go back that way. Yeah. And it is interesting because a lot of the species we take care of in zoos, they don't have a whole lot of data. We There's don't know hardly so Every bit you can grab yes. matters, right? Yes. Which yeah. I think is interesting because some people, I mean, most people have rolled with it. You know, we joke that baby's birth control is on the fritz. We <laughs> <laughs> have baby fritz here with us. Um, but when you think about it, humans we can study them so much easier and know so much more about them right. and all these different types of birth control and all right. sorts of things. And people still get pregnant while I'm birth control. So well, a lot of times that somebody forgets that something is going on kind of thing. That's thing. very, but, very true. But, it's usually human error. But, but it's a really good point because, I mean, with humans, we don't have one size fits all. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the market, there's like, you know, 16 to 20 different forms or birth control, and plus there's different levels within that because we know we can have we have averages. Mm -hmm. So we we take a group and we sum down the numbers and we say oh, on average this will work. Mm -hmm. But we know that that average doesn't going to work for the you know somebody on you know, the low side or somebody on the high side. And I have a feeling BB maybe is a unique individual <laughs> who is not going to fit the average. Yeah. Right. And also <laughs> when you think about it, you know there. are so many humans and there's only no, about 90 hippos living in zoos in North America in general and then you half that by male female and, right. and then the ones that are able to participate in any sort of study which I don't even know if there are like birth control studies mm -hmm. there's just like here this has worked for cows or horses right. or you know whales or whatever and then we're going to try and transfer that over to hippos right. so there's still so much to learn and I mean we are do, trying we do have the reproductive um, contraceptive center who's collecting information so uh, you know all the zoos are participating in like giving contraceptive to different animals they are trying to have guidelines and say hey this seems to be effective and this seems to work. Um, but it is still kind of, we're not really doing research. We're kind of trying out based on, okay, so well, this, we know this species is close to horses, so mm -hmm. let's try what works in horses. Mm -hmm. We know this species is close to cattle, let's try what you know, works in cattle. I mean, with primates, it's kind of easy. Okay, this species like human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it makes it easier. But, but it's not perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. But at least we you know, always say, okay, you make sure you take your dose every day. Yes. Which humans, you know, we're still working on that. <laughs> yeah, the animals might actually have more accuracy. Yeah, yes, we do. We get in trouble at our job if we don't. But so you ended up at Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and you weren't coming here to focus on hippos. No, I'm here for work on rhinoceros. So tell us about that. What like what you plan on doing? what you're doing and then we'll kind of get into how you ended oh. up with hippos we're back to sperm again because <laughs> um I, I focus on rhinoceros sperm and i'm part of a, a very large pro project american um, institute for rhinoceros science or airs as we call it mm -hmm. and i'm part of the reproductive reproduction pillar and my particular interest is i'm trying to figure out how do we sex sort sperm oh so basically we want to pre-select the gender wow. of the baby 
before you know we inseminate the female. That is interesting. I hadn't heard that. Not me either. That is wild stuff. Wow. Just because it's more important. Is it more important to have more females at this point? It depends on the species. But for like rhinoceroses, they tend to be females will group together. Males tend to be solitary. So, and when you have a male, you tend to have to have a a separate space for them Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And also, I mean, we have a very small population. We're trying to increase genetic diversity and stuff like that. And in those years where we have more males born than females, females that can be kind of difficult because you kind of need females to help propagate i mean you need the males but they a little bit goes a long way kind of thing with male females have to work a little bit harder right especially since they you know they gestate anywhere from 15 to 17 months long i mean that's a pretty long Mm -hmm. gestation and plus you got to wait for the calf to grow up and so the more females sometimes it'd be better to make sure that genetic population stays stable and stuff like that that makes sense so, um, and what I'm hoping that if I figure out something for the rhinos, that it will be applicable to other species like elephants who are also female, a female-oriented group that will do groups with females a little easier than they will in males and stuff like that. So, so where do you be, even begin the process yeah. to sort sperm understand. cells for male <laughs> and female? Well, okay, so th- it's actually the sperm that decides if it's going to be a male or female. You've got the sex chromosomes, so... There's sperm that carry the X, which is going to be a female, and there's sperm that carry the Y, and that's going to be the male. And right now, they actually have been doing it for decades in cattle, because they use a fluorescent dye that marks that DNA, so something on the inside of the cell. Um, and How you, do they find a dye that marks <laughs> that specific well, DNA? Like I said, us molecular biologists, we like to take things apart and make it glow. So we figured out how to dye DNA, just... and so and and it and it's it's doable. I mean, you but it takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of expertise, and it takes a very expensive piece of equipment. Okay. I and mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow! And like for cattle, they figured out, oh, we only need like four million sperm. You know, the, like for when we talk about, you know, rhinoceroses and elephants, we're talking, we're probably going to need a couple billion sperm. Wow. So, you know, while, you know, we, we can sort a cattle um, semen sample in just a couple hours, it takes a little longer to sort. And so, and while you're, you have to look at each individual, I mean, you're basically, we have an instrument that does it. There's not somebody with a scope going, oh, okay. you're an X, <laughs> oh, you're a Y. We've taught a computer and we taught an instrument, but they still look at each sperm at a time and a lot of sperm and the other thing this is the really frustrating part if you think about you know endangered wildlife about three quarters of those sperm samples get rejected because they're like i don't know oh my goodness and with cows i mean we have plenty of cows I and mean, it's really easy to go hey i need another sample can you get that from you right. know, the bull for me with rhinoceros i'm kind of like every sperm is kind of precious yes, <laughs> definitely why do you need so many more for the rhinos or different species well we don't know i mean we just for more testing or more data? Well, no, it's just we know that the, the when the, a male provides a sample, it has that many more sperm in it. It's just a larger oh. sample. It's a very it's larger a large sample. Okay. And, oh. like, so you think about, so in cattle, their reproductive tract is maybe, you know, a foot and a half at the most. And, like, in an elephant, it's 10 feet. Wow. Wow. And it's, you know, it's, so it's almost it, just size related. Yes, size related. Okay. I mean, we, and, like, the cattle, we've been, worked for decades to figure out, hey, we can get away with a lot fewer sperm. I see. Okay. We're still working out and we want to, okay, let's let's try to mimic 
what happens in nature as much as possible. Right. So we want to have more sperm. Okay. <laughs> and we don't want to be throwing anybody no, away. No. <laughs> yeah. And we don't want to be damaging them. And that's the other thing. There's some slight level of damage. We kind of are hitting them on the head and that's, you know, they don't take that quite as well. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like I said, we've had years to work with cattle and stuff. We're, we're kind of, we can, we can do it, rhinoceros. This amazing group at SeaWorld has figured it out and they can do it. Wow. But my job is, can I figure out a way to do it that's not, we don't throw sperm away, that doesn't hurt them <laughs> as much, and that anybody who can handle sperm can do it. Because right now it takes a very special expertise. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out if there's something on the outside of sperm. And based on cattle studies and horse studies and mouse sperm, there are differences between the male producing and the female on the outside of the sperm. Kind of the clothing they wear. Huh. You're like they, you know, you can think about some of them wear pink hats and some of them wear blue hats, <laughs> kind of thing. So I'm trying to figure out if I can use mag magnets to go, okay, go find me the pink hats. So I could just put the sperm in a tube and mix it with like little magnetic beads that would attach to like those little hats, and then put them on a magnet so all those guys would stick to the side. I could pour out, you know, pull out the ones wearing the blue hats, and then have a separated population. That would be incredible. That's my goal. That would be incredible. Now, whether I can make it happen, I don't know. I mean, so we're, we're, we're trying to that? do that in cattle and horses, and that's why I think it's feasible, because they are starting to do that with the domestic species. So I'm just going to, I'm trying also to do it with the rhinoceros. And this would make it so much more accessible, right? Because you said right now, you can do it, but you need these $100,000 instruments, mm -hmm. and then... Wait. If, if it's magnets, could anyone do it, basically? Basically, if you can handle sperm... And I mean, there's a little bit of training. But magnets, how do you get them to just stick to the specific DNA? How, where does that come from? Well, it's, okay. so you're talking about, you know, proteins, you know, can be on the outside of cells. Uh -huh. And then we have antibodies that would recognize those proteins. So you hook those antibodies to a magnetic bead. And then you they can, would hook to the cell. You can hook an antibody to a magnetic bead? Oh, yeah. We've been doing it for years. <laughs> <laughs> can you see it under a microscope? Well, microscope? A, a powerful microscope. So uh, Can you show me? Can you? <laughs> well, Not yes, now. Now. <laughs> can you do a video? <laughs> what? This is incredible. So. Like, can you... Can... <laughs> I told okay. you we were going to be learning a lot in this episode. <laughs> I haven't quite figured out the whole... Right, right now, I've figured out some proteins that look to be different between half the population of the sperm I'm looking at. So that suggests, because we know half of them should be X-bearing, half sure. of them should be Y-bearing. Yeah. So if half of them are glowing because of my antibody and half of them are not, I'm like, hmm. So I'm actually going to go over to children's and like use their cell sorter. So the kind of the same sorting, but I'm just going to separate based on the protein. And say, okay, are all you guys my females and all you my males? Because if, if they are, then I will hook the magnets. But first, I mean, it takes a little bit of research mm. to get to the simple Well, part. yes, I believe that. I don't, no, that's not simple to me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I do. I'm a geek. I'm a, I, I'm a lab geek. And that's what I do. Oh, it blow I just don't understand. These are things that you can't even see with the, your no, yeah. like, a lot of the time I do stuff and I trust them while I think it's there and I, until I make it glow, I don't know that it's there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. <gasps> so you're working primarily on the Rhino Ares right. project. And then we kind of drew you in. You know, we've talked um, to Dr. Jesse Matuzik, who uh, is no longer here at the Cincinnati Zoo. She, like, sort of accidentally also became a hippo person <laughs> yes. here. And so she, since she's not here, did you just, like, kind of, I don't I don't mean roped into it. I'm sure you enjoyed the opportunity. Well, I or, like the opportunity. How did it, it fall I think on it you? Just, or? It, 
you know, Aaron asked, Dr. Curry asked me, hey, you want to come with me? They, you know, we went on ultrasound BB. Because at that point, you guys were suspecting mm -hmm. something was yeah, going on. That was on. one of the very first ultrasounds, mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah. yeah, and because of my <clears throat> endocrine back, you know, background, I could, you know, I started thinking about, okay, so what's going on here? And that's when you... And I wanted to be part of the team of um, ultrasounding. I mean, it's something, I, I mean, I love being able to see what's going on <laughs> on the inside. So, and I mean, it just, you know, was able to kind of start participating with that. And, you know, understanding, and I mean, I'm really interested in getting babies you know, spit so mm -hmm. we can follow our hormones. <laughs> yeah, yes. so we've been collecting saliva for, from BB during pregnancy and now after also. Yeah. So you've been helping us with yeah. that. Yeah, it's because, I mean, it's our way, you know, hormones that, you know, we tend to think for humans, we'll, we'll get a blood sample. Well, it's not always so simple mm -hmm. from animals. And luckily for some of the species, we can get their spit or their poop mm -hmm. and we can manage their hormones. And their hormones will tell us if she's cycling or not. So, and, and during pregnancy, it tells us whether she's producing her own progesterone, which is that hormone that supports pregnancy. And it's also kind of the hormone we use to kind of mimic pregnancy and keep them from getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'd like to talk about that a little bit because, so what happened um, when we first met Dr. Louisa, she came down to ultrasound BB to find out if she was pregnant. And um, it was one of those things where I was worried because I knew she was on birth control and I didn't know how that would affect the baby if right. there was one. Um, but you made me feel better. So can you go ahead and kind of explain that? Okay, so the the, like, the birth control that we're using, like I said, it's basically mimicking progesterone. So it's trying to tell the body, hey, you're kind of pregnant, so you don't need to worry about cycling. You don't need to about worry about making a, an oversight ready to be fertilized. And then if they're not doing that, then they essentially can't get pregnant. Then they can get pregnant. They're not listening to that hormone. Yeah. They're like, I'm ignoring this phone call. <laughs> I've got other things to do. If, that, that, if the brain has a different plan. <laughs> um, so, but, so when you normally get pregnant, your body does produce progesterone. So like being on MGA, being on that progesterone mimic, it wasn't going to be harmful if she was pregnant because it, it actually could be supportive to and, it. And that's actually something that is really possibly important to this pregnancy because yes. um, looking back on the the data or um, information we were able to collect from her first pregnancy with Fiona, it does sound like there was potentially low progesterone involved, and that could have been why Fiona was born prematurely, yeah, correct? That we suspect that. And we like, didn't know that until this second pregnancy. Like, none of us keepers realized that you guys had that information, or I don't know if it wasn't looked at until this second pregnancy, but people ask us all the time, like, why was Fiona born prematurely? And we're like, we have no idea. I mean, it's a theory. Uh -huh. I mean, this, we have one little piece of <laughs> information. I mean, unfortunately, we don't know how often this may occur out in the wild if they, right. you know, and stuff. Or if this is a unique BB thing or mm -hmm. something like that. But it's a theory because we know pr that progesterone is kind of supporting the growth of the, that baby. And, like, if her progesterone is low, that would explain mm -hmm. why Fiona was so small. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, for whatever reason, she gave birth early. And, I mean, I don't know, you know, can't really study that easily. Right. Like you said, there's not a lot. That we, all we know, for all we know, so, it's just one. And this, right. It's, um, it's, but. And so that's why, I mean, we were very encouraging to continue BB on something to help support that pregnancy so we didn't have that happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say you were able to use that kind of past data to make different management decisions with mm -hmm. BB this pregnancy. We talked a little bit about how she was put on a supplement, the reasoning behind that and everything. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. because... 
her, her progesterone level. And we, we I mean, when Jesse was Dr. Jesse was studying, she was able to get saliva from uh, hippos from other zoos, and there was another hippo, you know, from an early pregnancy whose progesterone levels were much higher than BB. So mm -hmm. that's why we had an idea that BB's levels were lower than okay. would be normal. And then, so the decision was you know, made to put BB on a, another progesterone we, um, that has been shown in other species to be, to be supportive of pregnancy and that we knew would, you know, should, wouldn't be a problem. So, because we didn't want to have that happen again. We don't know. I mean, our initial samples before, you know, we put her on suggested that, you know, she may be higher than she was with Fiona, but maybe it wasn't necessarily as high as that has been seen in other hippos. Mm. So we just really wanted to support that pregnancy. So we made the, the management decision, and it was a whole team, and I was not, I was just, a, I helped facilitate yeah. the advice. I did not make the decision entirely. Yeah. I mean, lots of mice together, looking at other data and talking about what would be good for BB and this pregnancy. You know, put her on the progesterone, and they do it with, you know, with women. They'll put them on progesterone mm -hmm. to help support them and stuff like that. So, but we did, you know, we didn't leave her on it the whole time. We, you know, we did withdraw when we got near that, when we got past that window, when we knew, you know, what we safe for her to give birth. Mm -hmm. So past where, like, when Fiona was born. We kept calling it the Fiona window the, the whole Fiona time. The Fiona window. That early... You know. because, and the reason for that is really important because progesterone will sustain a pregnancy. And if we would keep her on that too long, the baby could be too big, overdue, like, right. and cause danger in a different way. Right. More danger for BB. Maybe more danger. Well, for BB and the baby. Well, yes. So if the baby gets too big, then she wouldn't be able to. It, it could be a very dangerous birth. I mean, that happens, you know, in a lot of species that mm -hmm. if a pregnancy mm -hmm. goes too long, then you're, you have a too large of a baby and you, it needs assistance. And we really want to be as hands-off as possible. Yeah. So we, we withdrew her down. So like what, a, and like, we still haven't looked at the data, but you collected, you know, her saliva the whole time. So we can look back to see what her progesterone levels were and kind of get an idea of how she did while she was on the, the supplement and then how she did when it was off. Because, I mean, she gave birth to Fritz basically almost like within the two or three days I was predicting yeah. that yeah. she would. Which is really cool and something else that you found out through, because you started researching more, looking into it and talking yes. to more people. And you taught me something that we've always said they have an eight-month gestation. But essentially, it's not super uncommon or it's happened where they are born closer to seven months and still like considered full term. Still full healthy, term. Not like the like premature... Not like Fiona was. Fiona. Yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, it's just like with, you know, we have a lot of data for human pregnancies. You know, we say 36 to 39 weeks. Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of the same thing with any, any species. And based on, I went into literature, what's been out there, and I kind of did some digging around and reading between all the, the sentences and stuff. <laughs> and like, well, we, we said on average it's eight months. Mm -hmm. But there's sometimes it can be, you know, as you, like you said, 210 days all the way to 240 days. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty... That's a month window right. of time. But the, the average is like 233 days plus or minus three. And if I remember right, Fritz was born, I think, on like 230. I wasn't counting the days, but he was born <laughs> August 3rd. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, yeah. but I yeah. think he was like 230 or 230. I mean, he was because right like, there. The 244 mark would have been August 15th because that was our right. original due date. So, yeah, that makes so sense. So, the 233, but... okay, maybe he was born 232 because I think I said August 4th is when I thought he was okay. going to be born. Okay, it was close. Mm -hmm. He was yeah. only about two hours late. <laughs> <like. laughs> oh. Which, yeah, that's all very interesting and something that I also look at because then people, when we share this information, um, 
we haven't like broadcasted it, not for any reason, we just haven't, but it's new information, it's interesting, but when people do hear it, they sometimes ask, oh, so is Fiona not as premature as we thought? But I've always said she was anywhere from like six to ten weeks premature, yeah. possibly because BB and Henry bred for the entire month of July, and usually animals will stop breeding once an animal is pregnant. Yes. So the fact that Henry was still trying to breed BB at the end of July makes me think Fiona wasn't conceived at the beginning of July. No, probably not. And so that puts her at 10 weeks premature yeah. from the date we assumed. So anyways, she was still definitely premature and she was, very small and like she couldn't Right, there was a lot and, of things going on. Yeah, yeah so, so there's definitely a difference with her no matter like the dates or whatever. But it is interesting that you, I mean, you think you know a lot and there's, you know, certain animals that... I'm like, oh, yeah, I know, like, a lot of their natural history, <laughs> and there's still so much more to learn. I had to learn a lot about hippies, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. So Good. I guess I think now I'm, like, into this whole mega herbivores. I like elephants, yes, I like rhinos, and I hit the herbivores. Throw a little meerkat in there, and you're <laughs> and I'm good to go. Uh, they seem kind of small on the small <laughs> side compared to what I am. <laughs> I went from fruit flies all the oh way to the other. Huge, huge difference. So do you have any plans to continue other than, like, this live we're collecting? Like, do you have time? I'm assuming the answer is no. But to, like, start a project with hippos or... Because the zoo, thanks to Bibi and her willingness to participate in a lot of things that hasn't always happened, which I think... More zoos are doing way more with their hippos these days, just in right. general, and I training it, with all animals and such, yeah. but Bibi's a good participant. Yes. Animals. The yeah. way I approach this is, I don't want to just do research for research sake. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of questions we can answer. Like, like I said, we've got a lot of black boxes mm. when it comes to fertility and reproduction for a lot of our species. My, my point, I want to develop tools that help us support the animal's health that we need those answers to. So I kind of wait for you to tell me, I need to know this. Okay. Mm. And then I will help design the experiments and the research <laughs> to help try to get those answers. Okay. So, so if there is something, and I mean, right now, you know, we're trying to figure out what is the dose that we put BB oh, on. <laughs> so can you tell me, is this dose working? <laughs> right. So we have changed the dose for BB, and it's probably more weight-based than we originally thought were BB just needs a higher dose for some right. reason but. for whatever reason and we we may have to consider that she may need an alternative oh yeah that what we're using kind. i mean i've been talking to my colleague who is actually working on some of the birth control for those hippos down in Colombia. Oh, oh, very wow. nice. <laughs> yes, The Escobar and, hippos, right? Yes, the yeah. Escobar hippos. Wow. And so You're trying talking to... about male uh, doing uh, birth control for the males, right? Or some sort right. of sterilization? So they're using, it's kind of a, um, a vaccine against one of the hormones that's in the brain that controls reproduction in both males and females. Oh. The gene RH. And so you can give it to males and females. You can give it to pregnant females, and it won't interfere with the pregnancy or anything like that. The idea, though, it keeps them after, you know, keeps them from cycling. Okay. You know, kind of, it's kind of like when you vaccinate against, you know, COVID or something. You're like, okay, th if this shows up, stop it. <laughs> and that's like kind of that GnRH molecule is that key starting point to say, hey, I'm ready to like produce a, either a female gamete or a male gamete, so we can have fertilization happen. Okay. So you can give it to both males and females. And I know there's not been a lot of work done on hippos and it's kind of, they're trying to see, but are we doing that with cats? It, we're doing, um, we're trying to do a non-surgical -ster um, sterilant, but it's a different process, okay. <laughs> but it's the same kind of concept that you're, you're knocking out the, the uh, that, that communication 
Okay. And saying, okay, we're, we're going to cut the phone line between you and say, mm-hmm. okay, the, the gonads do not need to speak to the brain. We don't need any more <laughs> communication. <laughs> and so, but that seems too easy, right? Like this vaccine. Why is it only working for specific animals or why can it not work for... So the, the thing with like this is can kind of be a permanent thing. Ah, uh, okay. So it's like when you were like, okay, we don't want you to breed ever again. Okay. okay. And so that's why for a lot of the, you know, species that we work with that we manage we don't really want to say no you're done mm-hmm. when we're like okay we're just going to pause you because yeah. we need to like you know maybe introduce you to somebody else or wait for your calf to be completely grown before we try absolutely mm-hmm. but i'm thinking more of like the stray cat dog right. overpopulation issues or and that's why that i mean that's be... some of the research that's being done in different scientists than me yeah at crew <laughs> but that's what they're working on because yeah. it'd be so much easier if we can just give a one injection yes and then i mean that's a lot less invasive yeah. and then like hopefully Hopefully, you know, curb that population. Right. I mean, and, and it's not just here in the U.S. There's a mm-hmm. lot of countries that struggle with an overpopulation of cats or dogs. Right. And, yeah. And I'm just thinking it would be, should be, in my mind, easy. Like, it, I don't know, to fix the problem. No, no we, 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 we have a goal. It's like the easy. It's easy to think of. Like, I just need a magnet and a little bit of <laughs> organizer. But then That's I've got to find the, the, the connecting point, you yeah. know, oh, and make man. sure it doesn't do anything else. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. So something I wanted to ask you, we had mentioned you were one of the the main people that came over and helped with all these ultrasounds that we did. Jen and I have talked about what that kind of process was like for us, but you had a very different perspective (laughs) while we were doing these ultrasounds. Will you tell us what that process was like for you on your side? Well, I mean, I'm fairly new to ultrasound. I mean, we do it a lot in cattle and stuff, but I I was so happy to join the team. And, I mean, for us, I mean we weren't sure what we were supposed to be seeing. And like, you know, you look in the, we have guidelines, what we've seen in other species and stuff. And I mean, just the, usually like when cattle and horses and which I've helped before is you stick your arm, you know, transrectally (laughs) because these are very large animals. They have got quite a large abdomen. So we can't do the same thing that we do with humans, but because of the unique nature of hippos and that very strong tail, that's not an option. <laughs> no, yeah. And so, and beet is quite insulated. Mm-hmm. And so, that's a we, nice it, way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, she needs that insulation. She's going to be in water. Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep warm. It's her own little wetsuit. That's right. That's <laughs> just a... several inches thick. And that, I mean, trying to bounce sound through that. I mean, it's kind of, and the, it takes a team. And that's why we, we had a team that we come over with yeah. people because. We're, we're having to press and like, you know, and we need somebody to be watching the screen while somebody else is kind of underneath BB. Yeah. <laughs> so, but she was incredible to work mm-hmm. with. So I the mean, person on the screen was kind of guiding you, mm-hmm. you know, left, right, up, down. Well, it's not so much. They're like, they would say, okay, you know, that's a good spot. Don't move. <laughs> Give us a chance to look and see what, you know, I mean, you're, you're trying to watch over your shoulder, but a lot of times you're, you're, you're under BB. Yeah. She's not a small girl. No. <laughs> yeah, so they're basically, I think we've talked about this before, but basically on their hands and knees, on the floor, pressing as hard as they can against BB's, you know, two-inch thick skin, and then uh, the layers of fat, and then trying to get through to her organs, and find the right organ, right. And all of that. With their arm straight out wide, as yes. far as they can it's reach like the whole time. A, I was, <laughs> like, compared to holding, like, a milk jug, you know, just straight for, like, right. ten minutes or yeah. something. So, you know, they their arms get tired after a little bit, but then... 
were all like, but she's doing great. We want to see something. I'd be like, I just want to see the heartbeat. You know? <laughs> We'd see if like somebody else could give it a try or well, whatever. And, but you know, Dr. Julie Barnes was so, I mean, she got the, she saw the heart, you know, able to get the heartbeat and she actually got, that was picking. my favorite <laughs> video we've ever had. Yeah. yeah so, that was yeah. Awesome. so, and it's, I mean, we have an over at our discovery station. I don't know if you guys have come over and met Charlotte. So we have a black rhino that oh, you I've can, about her, but we have you can you can ultrasound and kind of gives you the experience. Now, of course, that's transrectally and not abdominally, but it kind of gives you the idea because, like, you know, small movements, you you can see very different things as you're going through, and it's there, it's an art. It, there, I mean, there's science behind it, but there's an art to doing mm -hmm. ultrasound, and so it's just yeah, it was tiring, and you'd we'd switch arms yeah. and <laughs> switch people. That's why there's always a team of us working together. I always felt for you guys because I, I feel like I had the easiest job of the whole group. <laughs> I'm just feeding her at the front, keeping BB happy, and you guys are sweating your butts off on your hands and knees, like man. Oh Never. man! No, after seeing those, it's so fun. I'm like, this could be my next career, a sonographer. <laughs> <laughs> People I'm sure that's it. stressful too, but, uh, yeah, that, that's one of the best things these days is being able to do ultrasounds on animals and yeah, like yeah. knowing for sure that way. But of course you guys have developed ways to tell from saliva or fecal. Yeah. And so. I mean, it, it, we're always, we try to be optimistic about, you know, we think that's a pregnant mean, because for a lot of these species, we're like, well, that's where the uterus is supposed to be. Right. <laughs> that looks kind of like a uterus. Let's hope that's what, you know. But for a lot of it, it's brand new information. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just kind of something, and not a lot of people have done it yet. Mm -hmm. But like you said, more and more zoos are starting to do it and starting to incorporate it. Like, hey, let's let's monitor it. Let's see what we can see. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we mentioned we're still collecting saliva samples so we can see what BB's progesterone levels are like when she is not pregnant, and then we can use that in the future again if she is pregnant again we'll be able to compare it and see like the differences and then will it also help us determine if this new dosage of birth control is correct for her yeah so the the assay that we use measures her normal progesterone that you know that she makes does not measure that the the supplement you're giving her so we can tell and my whole idea is that she will not be making any progesterone because like when she's making progesterone that means she's cycling okay so mm. and we don't want her to be <laughs> cycling yeah. because okay. that means she may be making a follicle so you're testing her saliva to see if there's any progesterone in it and if it if there is she is cycling and therefore could get pregnant possibly okay yeah. You know, and I mean, there are some, I mean, I've been looking at the literature, then it does look like you can get small spikes in progesterone, but the, the cycle length is much shorter, so they're probably not as fertile okay. if you can, if you've suppressed it somewhat. Yeah. And I mean, based on what we've seen, what little we've done with Fiona, because you've been able to get poop from her, mm -hmm. um, it does look like we've suppressed her progesterone, so she can't get pregnant. Good. <laughs> Which is good for Fiona. She's not ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not Our little princess. <laughs> but truly, she's not big enough. We would worry about her size. Yeah, yeah she, she's a very small. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Definitely. I feel like the whole this whole kind of process has been a really cool collaboration, though, because we're able to kind of learn what we did from Fiona's pregnancy and, uh, or I'm sorry, BB's pregnancy <laughs> yeah. up with Fiona right. and kind of make adjustments to this time around. And it, it worked like a charm, like you yes. said. I yes. mean, you had predicted... Fritz's birth almost to the day, yeah, basically. That's impressive. And <laughs> BB was amazing throughout the whole thing, was carried a full term healthy calf, and now we've got Fritz bouncing around the exhibit as proof of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, every little 
I know that we can be kind of annoying as we're eyes. Well, can you get us more spit? Can you get us more poop? Can we, can we come in <laughs> ultrasound? But we, for us, it's like every little bit of information we build it. You know, you know, we build on what we don't know. Definitely. And then we can share it with others so that if they find themselves, they're not like us, like, um, has anyone else had this issue? Right. <laughs> anyone? <laughs> so, and that's, that's a lot what we do is like, so when someone says, huh, something funny is going on, we say, okay, what can we, what questions can we ask? What tests can we do to try to figure out what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Especially from the repro side. Mm -hmm. Right. No, we, we don't mind at all. It's especially the saliva is so easy and the ultrasounds <laughs> are always fun, but, yeah. uh, the poop is different because hippos poop in the water most often, so yeah. collecting it and um, just depending on where Fiona sleeps at night and that sort of thing can make it difficult, but otherwise it's very easy. Hippos poop a lot, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't mind at all. And we always like to contribute to that stuff. Yeah, like, definitely. We like to think that we're... the samples and data that we're helping collect is oh, making you a difference for this species, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yes, for sure. Definitely. So now that the hippo's all finished for the moment, you're well, back to rhinos? Well, I, I'm correct? always rhinos. You're always rhinos. <laughs> it, and I mean, the hippos aren't done. We're, we're gonna, you know, like I said, we've got to keep an eye on BB mm. and stuff like that. But I mean, most of my time is rhinos. Yeah. But like I said, I do, depending on the needs that come up, when we have, you know, people ask different questions and stuff, that we'll shift gears and we allot our time as needed and stuff. So it's kind of, it's a balancing act sometimes. You know, my priority is rhinos, but, you know, when you have an issue, I we come to the rescue. We <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it. Or an unexpected pregnancy. You know? yeah. <laughs> exactly. Surprise. <laughs> Was there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think would be really cool to share or that you wanted to talk about with your with your job? Yeah. I mean, magnetic. Yeah, I, I think you... you Antibodies we and went protein. A lot of detail. Detail. <laughs> I was going to say, you get me started talking. I'm probably not sure. Uh, <laughs> I know so I'm... And I'm a science geek. I know I can get very science-y and I stuff. And I try oh. to be careful. No, no, that. you explain a lot of it really well. So, I mean, there's things that my brain just can't fathom, but... It's no, that was no, great. I feel like we covered a lot Learned about so me. Much. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. All right. Well, then, should we embarrass ourselves with trivia? I, I do have trivia okay. for you guys. Okay. Obviously, we've got a reproductive specialist on the on the show today, so we've got some um, animal gestation okay. slash <laughs> slash incubation Ooh, questions. Okay. Okay. So we talked about hippos, you know, right at that eight month window, but that's kind of an average, you know, more like seven and a half to eight ish months, somewhere in that range. So we're going to start, first question is an animal that's a similar size, a little bit smaller than a hippo, the black rhino. <laughs> I imagine Lisa knows the answer to this I one. know the answer <laughs> to this. In fact, I may have mentioned I it earlier. I was going to say, I think I do too. So what <laughs> is the gestation period for a black rhino? I was going to say 15 to 16 months, but oh. I think you said 15 to 17 Well, months. I was encompassing all the rhino species. Oh, okay. Oh, so okay. Is black rhino, 15 to 16? 15 to 16. Yes. You guys are right on the money. 15 to 16 <laughs> months. I should mention all these species that I've got listed, by the way, are species that we've either recently had... Uh, births or oh. we're trying to reproduce and have births with. So black rhino, obviously we've got a, a couple calves in the past mm -hmm. five or six years now with Kendi and a Johnny Joe. Yeah. But you guys are right on the money, 15 to 16 months. Calf is usually born at about 80 to 110 pounds. I think that's just fascinating because like, like I said, they're a really similar size to hippos, but... but a double twice the gestation? The gestation? That's yeah. A good yeah. Point. yeah, I'm always blown away at hippos being so short. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas as to why that is? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done a lot of research into understanding why gestation is the way it is. Yeah. I mean, we know 
for like humans that I mean there's a lot it has to do about brain size you know the lengths of that and then how much care they need afterwards kind uh -huh. of thing like how much mm -hmm. how many hit the ground running and ready to go versus how much and it may be I wonder if it's more tied to like hippos are tend to be more in the water and that's very supportive. You know, you're not really that different from being in the uterus the kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Very supportive. Well, with a rhino, they're hitting dry land yeah. and they have to be able to move it, move it kind of thing yeah. <laughs> and, get, and get out of the way of things. So they maybe need to be more ready to go and may, you know, develop that skin a little thicker. Mm. I don't know. That would be my hypothesis. Okay. I like so. it. <laughs> that checks out with me. Um, next up, we got Red Panda. We've had many, many cubs here over the years. What is the gestation period for Red Panda? I would say, isn't it about two months? About 60 days? I was going to guess three months. You guys are both a little bit low. It's closer to four months. They okay. say it runs about 110 to 140 days, okay. somewhere in that range. So just under four months. They usually give birth to one to four cubs. And the cubs are born at about three to five ounces. Oh, if you've ever seen them, they're tiny. just a little puff ball. Yeah, they're these tiny little things with tons of fur. Oh, that's so small. Adorable, <laughs> yeah. All right, next up, another one that we've had many, many babies over the years, little blue penguin chicks. Oh. What is the incubation period <laughs> I am for a little blue penguin egg? We're jumping, jumping. This is jumping species, species here. here time, I was yeah. going to say, I can do mammals pretty well, I think, most this of the time. This is going to be um, a complete guess. Oh. oh, okay. I'm gonna to have to stay. Say, you know, it's only like what 45 days, 60 days, maybe. I don't. I don't know. 45, 60 I don't know. days, Jenna. I guess? was going to guess 67. Luis is right on the money. It's about 35 that to 45 so days. Yeah, there's so not many yeah. days. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a little bit over a month. Well, and it's, I mean that you only have so much space in that little egg. Yeah. <laughs> What's a chicken or a turkey? I think 20, chicken's about 20, 21 wow. days, yeah. something right there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Three, that's not long at all. There, yeah. Your birds do it quick. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you you think about who's going to come and raid your nests and stuff. Right, and yeah. So you've got to get that done really quick. Yeah. <laughs> the little blue penguin chicks usually born about 30 to 40 grams, about the size of a Hershey bar. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> but recently wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't our last chick Rose after Betty White? I think that was our last little blue penguin chick. I don't know. I don't I'll be know. really honest yeah, with you. Yeah, she was born no over idea. the winter. I think she was named Rose, though, after Betty White. But moving on, next one we've got. It's been a few years since we've had a baby, but Aardvark. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like I should know this. I was going to say six months. Six months? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I think I'm more. Let's see. Hmm. I guess maybe about five months. Five months? Yeah. You guys are both just a little bit low again. It's actually <laughs> about seven months. Okay. Seven months. Yeah, 210 to 220 days, somewhere in that range. Which is crazy to me because... Yeah, because that's right, right around something at the hippo. At the hippo. Yeah. <laughs> and a, an aardvark baby is born at about four to five pounds. <laughs> so, seven months for a four to five pound baby. What was fritz just born at after eight months he 80. was 80 pounds <laughs> yeah. exactly like that is that's wild wild all right we've got one way off the beaten path here an american burying beetle egg how long does it take to hatch oh, i i'm sure mandy taught us this i think mandy I taught know. us this yeah I think. <laughs> two weeks egg to hatch so this is 
egg to larva egg stage. to larva yeah egg to larva oh then that's yeah that's really quick isn't it oh my gosh i should know this <laughs> i have no clue egg to larva the uh i'm gonna say like 24 hours 24 hours, Lucy? Well, I'll guess 36. 36. You guys, it's, yeah, 36 is pretty close. It's about three days. Okay. Right at three days. Hours. Yeah, about 72 hours. But that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, yeah. that's really yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one up for you guys. Another species that we've had a ton of success here at the Cincinnati Zoo, the Western Lowland Gorilla. We're back to mammals now. So are they human-like? There should be like human-like. I'm trying to remember. It isn't. It's it's about the the nine months, isn't it? I was going to say ten. It's closer to nine. It's about eight and a half to nine months. Ah, so yeah, it's, less yeah, than it's like okay. the human, just yeah. under human gestation. Yep, yep. And their babies are usually born about three to five pounds. I think our last baby was L here, right? You're really asking no. me questions. I don't. Was it Cup of Joe Burrow as the last little blue penguin? Cup of Joe Burrow was the last <laughs> blue penguin. Was You're, last right. Blue You're right. I forgot because that was right around the Super Bowl. Yes. Yes. When, yeah. Yes. Cup of yes. Joe hatched. Yes. Yeah. And, and then right. yeah, Ella's the youngest, right? Yeah. Because there's Gladys and Mona, but they are older. They're older than okay, Ella. Yeah. Yes, Ella, yeah. Honestly, though, I'm impressed. I threw a bunch of random species <laughs> at you guys. Lots of guessing happened. <laughs> Okay, so oh, we'll finish out the episode asking, what can I do? What is something someone can do that maybe you do at home or okay. you can what, share with us? What I'd like to share and encourage people to do is to compost. So I like taking those food scraps, like you know, not meat or fat, but you know, all the, like when I make a salad, all those things I chop off and don't use, and put it in a compost bin. Um, now I have a, my own little tumbling bin out back, and I use that to you know, make soil to grow more things but I really my point is that you can just kind of continue that cycle of life and not produce produce less waste that we throw away less things that go into the landfill um, I mean I've we have a Keurig and I you know I love having my single cup of coffee but I do try to make sure that I throw a, as a little of it away as possible. So I've been trying to buy those pods that actually can be composted. Oh, and I very found, cool. Yeah, I found a company that, like, even the bags the pods come in, I can throw in my composter. That's so, awesome. like, almost all of it breaks down except the little plastic ring. And they've told me it's because I'm not an industrial composter. I don't get hot enough. But I know there that there's companies here in Cincinnati that give you the opportunity if you wanted to be part of, like, an industrial compost and stuff. And that it may cost a little bit, but, in fact, it maybe save money and save the planet just a little bit at a time because mm -hmm. the less that we put in landfills because that's doesn't really break down right but like food in like a composter breaks down do you understand it enough to explain that why putting this food in a composter and the heat and everything helps break it down but when it's in a giant pile in a landfill why it doesn't break down that must get hot also well, right it, it gets hot but it's not just food so you've got all these layers of plastics and metals and all the, you know, and then, so like in a composter, we layer like that, the green stuff like from your kitchen and we layer it with brown stuff like leaves or cardboard and stuff. And then we introduce like worms because they're going to help move through it and break down. Then you have that, those nice bacteria and stuff. And a lot in the landfill, there's a lot of things that will kill all those things that would help break down the food. Mm -hmm. So you, and you don't get the, we add air, we add moisture into the composter. So you, it's a whole ecosystem inside 
inside of itself to break it down and make dirt again and stuff. Landfill, we can't really do it. And they tend not to, like, stir it. Right? <laughs> like, we stir our compost and stuff. So, and I mean, you just create these big piles that just, they're, they're stagnant. They yeah. don't do anything. I mean, sometimes things break down, but not in the most pleasant way. And it's not just food things. That mm -hmm. sense. So if we separate it out, we, you know, we produce smaller piles of things and everything, you know, we recycle, you know, all the plastic and try to recycle the metals and stuff. So what we put in the landfill is as small as possible. I love that because well, there's so much I need to learn about composting, and I think we could have one of our sustainability team members come oh, yeah. in and tell us an entire episode worth. But it is interesting to know that you can put certain things and others, but there is a little bit of work that goes into it, but it's not too much work, It's right? really like, not that much How much, much time work. do you think you put into it uh, in a week or whatever? In a week, I, I mean, maybe 15 minutes. Because okay. basically, basically, what I do is I collect it together until I get, like, I have a old kilolid pail that I collect all my food stuff. And then once that's full, I take it out of my composter and then I kind of put it in. I've got one of those ones that tumbles. So that, you know, I kind of... Does I it check. for you instead of having to use a yeah, shovel? Yeah, and I just roll it down the hill and up again <laughs> and it's done for me kind yeah. of thing. But there's a lot of different ways and there's a lot of information out there. And like I said, I believe, I haven't looked at it too closely, but I think there's a couple companies where like they will give you a pail and you fill it up, they take it away, and then when you need compost, they bring you compost. Oh, very back. cool. So, I mean, very like cool. I said, there's a charge with it, but... I think it could be really worth it. Yeah. I mean, the plants I've grown with it, whether, you know, it's just flowers or, you know, just greeneries or like when I grow tomatoes and stuff, they grow so much better if I have, and then I'm not going and buying fertilizer. Right. I've created my own dirt. Exactly. And it's really healthy dirt. Yeah, it's really, really healthy, healthy dirt. Soil. Yeah. And that's why you get and the better And the worms seem really happy about it. <laughs> That's a great one that we, I don't think we've talked about before. And like I said, we'll have to do a whole episode on it. I yeah. feel like, but, but that's another one of those things, like you said, every little bit counts and every, right. th every bucket that we can keep out of the landfill matters. Right. right. Yeah. Every little action adds up. Mm -hmm. it makes, we're all greater, you know, together than just, you know, keeping it separate. You don't have to have, I mean, big actions are lovely if we can do it, but for, as an individual, it's usually the small things that are going to make the biggest difference. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things I personally do not compost because it sounds intimidating to me, but I don't think, it, you know, obviously you just taught me and, and there's so much to learn, but I think with just a tiny bit of research and maybe an initial like cost to get right. things you it's, need. But like you said, use a kitty litter bucket and right. then the compost bin. So there's ways about it for sure. Right. And there's a lot of options out there and there's a lot of different ways depending on how, what space you have and what you do. And I mean... There's a lot of community gardens, and they may be able to work with them to, like, you know, may have a drop-off to, like, I mean, maybe it's a project we work to get buildings so, like, yeah. a, a neighborhood could just, like, we all compost together, so then nobody has to have individual. Right. And we s spread the love around. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Great. Well, I love it. I need to look into composting now. <laughs> feel you. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Gotta... I'm glad I could help. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here yeah. and teaching us about so many amazing things and helping out with the whole baby pregnancy. Yeah, that was I've, great. And Fritz is doing really thank well. You. And, yes. Yeah. It's been fun working with you over the past few months with the pregnancy, obviously. It's been fun having you on the show. We know you're busy. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I've really enjoyed this. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All Thanks right, everyone. So Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Yep. Take care, guys. <laughs>